Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. We are in the middle of the Kingdom of God series. And there it is. And uh, we're, in, uh, we're in week three. And why the Kingdom of God? Well, there's really no escaping the fact that it is the cornerstone. It is the bulk of Jesus' teaching revolves around the Kingdom of God. It's interesting that both Jesus and John the Baptist started their ministry the exact same way, the exact same phrase. Both of them, their first public words were, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is with us. The kingdom of God is among us. This is a new thing where the kingdom of God is actually present. And it's an invitation. Jesus' ministry is an invitation to the crowd to be part of the kingdom now. Um, The kingdom of God, sometimes we get it in our head, oh, the kingdom of God, that's where we go when we die. No, no, it's much more exciting than that. Jesus wants us to experience what it's like to be in the kingdom now. What does that look like? So that's kind of what the direction we're going. Um, I'm going to talk today about parables. um, And why parables? Because most of Jesus' teaching was in parables. Um, and it's probably good to, to land on what are parables, why did Jesus teach that way. And in particular, I'm going to focus on one parable, uh, parable of the sower as we know it. Uh, it's actually in three Gospels, which tells you something. It's Mark 4, uh, Luke 8, Matthew 13. All three Gospels portray this one. So we're going to sp- spend some time. Today we're just going to dig into uh, the first part of it, and then we'll kind of go to the explanation part next week. You'll understand why. Um, well, hey, I want you to be the crowd. I want you to experience what the crowd that first heard this message uh, got. Um, so I'm going to read from Mark 4, and I'm going to start with the first verse here. This is how Jesus starts out, or how it starts out. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat, out, sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. So in a, a typical, this Jesus is out, and there are thousands of people that are crowding around him, and he's going to give a message. He wants to tell them about the kingdom of God. And so he gets into a boat, and he casts off, and he's got all these people along the water's edge, and I would suggest maybe up on the hillside and, and whatnot. There's a, uh, there's a little picture here. It's actually called Sower's Cove. My wife, Judy, and I got the chance to be in Israel six years ago, and we saw this formation here. If you had an overhead view, it just looked like a natural amphitheater built into the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, you can easily see Jesus casting off with a boat and having the crowd, uh, thousands of people being able to hear what he has. So he's got the crowd captive. You're the crowd, and here's what you get to hear. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching he said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants, so they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil, 
It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's, that's what you get. He didn't go into any, anything else. He just kind of left that out there. So if you were that crowd, and that's all you know, maybe some of you have heard this parable before, maybe you've read the explanation Jesus gives, which we'll talk about. But if that's all you had, I hope that you've got a lot of questions. I hope you don't go, oh, great story. I know exactly what he's talking about. You should be confused because we don't even have a bearing on, well, who's the farmer? What's the seed? What, what three so four soils? Okay, good soil. What's going on here? What's happening? What does that do with me? Um, there's a lot involved. That's what a parable is. Parable is a story intended to give some kind of spiritual lesson, but it really needs to be explained in order to really understand. But that's all he gives to the crowd. Um, interesting. So then we read on. It says. Mark 4.10, the 12 and others around him, so his 12 disciples plus a bunch of other people, didn't tell us how many, probably a decent crowd, asked him about the parable. This is actually Mark 4.10, and I'm throwing in Matthew 13, because Matthew 13 adds, why do you speak to the people in parables? (laughs) Thank you for that question, disciples, (laughs) because if they hadn't asked that question, we wouldn't have the explanation. Uh, which is part of the whole lesson today. Um, they needed to ask the question to Jesus. Why, why did he speak in parables? Can you explain this to us? In uh, Mark four eleven and 12, it says, He told them, The secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that... They may be ever seeing, seeing but never perceiving. They may be ever hearing but not understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. What? I'm sorry. You may see that's a little confusing. It makes it sound like Jesus is saying to the to his disciple, "I speak in parables because uh, I want them to always be hearing but not really understanding. Uh, they can see a lot, but they won't really perceive." Um, Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven, be healed. Again, that, that statement adds a question. Well, what Jesus is doing, I think we need to understand this. Context is everything. Jesus is throwing out a verse, throwing out a line from the book of Isaiah. It's a rabbinical teaching tool used all the time by Jesus and other teachers of his day. And it's called a remez. Um, well known in the Jewish culture, but we don't have that understanding. But remez is simply what Jesus did. Putting a verse out there that the whole crowd would know what the verse was, where it was, where it was in, in the Torah, where it was in the Old Testament, and the context of it. But we wouldn't. We don't know the Old Testament. We don't know the Torah. But his crowd, the Jewish culture in that day, virtually every kid by the time they're 13 years old have the Old Testament memorized. It's crazy. Uh, we, we can't even relate to that in our culture. But they didn't have, you know, a lot of other things. They didn't have movies. They didn't have music, internet, all those things that we spend our time with. But so they, they memorized the Old Testament. So when Jesus throws out one line, they know what it, what it means. Um, in our culture, just to give you, how does that relate to us? Well, if I were to want to tell you a story about, oh, I don't know, family, tragedy, 
betrayal. And if I just threw in the line, Luke, I am your father. I'm guessing some of you might know what I'm talking about. That's basically our modern version. However, how many are sharp enough to know that I misquoted that? Thank you, Corbin. Yeah. Oh, there's, oh, there's a few people. Oh, yeah, because that's not what he said. That's what most people think he said. But in fact, those Star Wars fans know that he really just said, no, I am your father. Context is important. But nevertheless, whether you know it as Luke or not, um, you know, if you know Star Wars at all, if you have a life, you would know what that meant. It meant, oh, this is Darth Vader's. I can picture the scene. This is they're having the duel and arms are getting cut off and all sorts of things. And for all of Luke Skywalker's life, Darth Vader's been trying to turn him to the dark side and trying to end his life. And uh, this is the moment that Luke understands that Darth is my father. And it changes the whole dynamic of the show. So there you go. If I was talking about, that'd be a great Ramez, wouldn't it? Um, Well, that's what Jesus is doing. So we need to jump back to the verse that Jesus is talking about and look at the context. What is Jesus talking about? So Isaiah, this is actually just a little background. Uh, this verse that he pulls out of is the middle of a bigger passage that I'll read. Uh, but it's the book of Isaiah where God is basically anointing, calling Isaiah to be his prophet. And this is in a time, by the way, that the nation of Israel is a very rebellious nation. They're about to be taken into exile because they will not pledge allegiance to, the, to, the, to their God. They will not follow him. They won't obey him. They're, they're rebellious and they want to do life their own way. Um, And so, under that context, we'll read the whole thing. Isaiah 6, 8 to 10. Then I heard a voice of the Lord say, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Isaiah, here I am, send me. So he told him, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So it gives a little bit better picture. The people understood the message. The message was, for the most of the crowd, they were rebellious. They're not going to listen. Whatever you say to them will just make their hearts harder, will just make their ears duller. So God is not telling them, or not telling Isaiah to, to do that to him, he's telling them this is going to be their response. This is the reaction of the crowd. So in that context, we kind of understand a little bit of where Jesus is going. Jesus is basically saying, hey, most of the crowd won't, won't get this. Um, most of the crowd uh, are, want to do things their own way. Uh, and it's not his goal um, to give them clarity. Uh, so... Um, <clears throat> They're really, uh, if, if you don't understand something, something you read and anybody ever read anything that didn't make sense or you had questions about or heard a message maybe right now, what's he talking about? Um, there are really only two options when you don't understand something, whether it's something you read, something you hear. There's, there's really only two options. One would be, hmm, well, I uh, don't get it. Oh, well, I got stuff to do today. I mean, you just kind of walk right by it. You hear something, maybe you hear a great message, it didn't make sense. And that's kind of maybe where most of Jesus' crowd was. They loved hearing him, but most of them, that's as far as it went. Uh, The second response is, you're going to want to know the answer. You're going to seek out an answer. You're going to pursue 
this guy. Ask him. I mean, maybe you're a student like that. Your professor says something, and you kind of, I got to talk to that guy. I got to figure out what he's talking about. Um, so that was the response. Note Jesus said this to the disciples that asked him the question. The kingdom of God has been given to you. You, the ones that pursue me, the ones in relationship, you get to know the secrets of the kingdom. That's the key. How do we live the kingdom life? It's not by hearing the message. It's about responding. Uh, Jesus' goal was never clarity. It was response. Um, That's why he spoke in parables, to elicit the option of, are you going to follow up with me? Are you going to want to know what I'm talking about? Come to me. I'll tell you. Figure it out. Um, that's the kind of people he's, he's choosing. People that would say, hey, I don't know what he's doing, but I'm following that guy. I don't know where it's taking me, what it means, but I'm in. I'm, I'll figure it out. I don't need to have all the answers. I just need to know who's got the answers for me. Um, well, it gives a little context, too. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, uh, it's all over in there. Matthew uh, 5, 6 says this. Blessed are, the, are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be satisfied. Theirs is the kingdom. Hunger and thirst. Not just listen. Um, I think it's a great imagery. Jesus saying, if you really hunger and thirst for righteousness, is it something that you need uh, to survive? Is it something you really want enough uh, to go after? Blessed are the, those that hunger and thirst. He also said in Matthew 6.33, seek First, the kingdom of God and all these things will be added. He's wanting people to seek out the kingdom, not just understand what the kingdom is. Um, that's who he's calling out. And then finally, Matthew eleven twelve 12 uh, is a great verse. I have to give a little context to this. Uh, if you read it in most of our translations, it's translated with the word violent or violently, and it's kind of different connotation to us. That was what the most translators did because Matthew was written in Hebrew and we're getting a Greek interpretation uh, when we come up with a phrase. So God's word translation, thank you, one translation that maybe transcribes it more accurately to the Hebrew, says it this way. I love the verse, one of my favorite verses. From the time of John the baptizer until now, the kingdom of God has been forcefully advancing and forceful people seize it. I love that. Kingdom of God from the time of John the Baptist. Again, context. This is only like a year long. But from the time that John the Baptist showed up on the scene, he's saying, hey, now the kingdom of God is advancing forcefully. Not just a theory, not just a thought. It's now here. It's among us. And I'm inviting you to it. But you've got to seize it. You've got to go after it. That's how you experience the kingdom of God. Um, just a couple of examples that really make this clear. Yeah, I, this is like three examples out of many uh, that you could pick from. Um, but Peter being one. Peter was the disciple. He was the one that Jesus said at one time, you're the rock. You're the one I'm going to build my church on. You're going to lead this when I'm gone. And great. Well, <clears throat> then we know more about Peter. And we realize, hey, he's the guy that keeps putting his foot in his mouth He's saying things that need to be corrected. At one time, he made a statement to Jesus, hey, no, you'll never, you'll never die. You know, well, I'll be there for you. And he told him to get behind me, Satan. Maybe at that time he could have said, hey, John, your turn. Step up here. Peter's a, I thought he was going to be the guy, but no. 
But no, Jesus wanted Peter to be his guy because he was a, a man forcefully seizing the kingdom. He had a great zeal, great attitude. Um, you can channel a forceful person. You can, even with their flaws, God can channel them. He can transform them because he knows they will impact. They will experience and impact uh, the kingdom. So that's why he chose Peter. And he did take, you know, when Peter denied Jesus, by the way, he's also the one who cut off the ear of the head of the high priest's uh, guard. It's kind of like, put that back. Hey, Peter. Well, then he denies Jesus three times. And that was the point that he was broken enough to, to be humbled and God would transform him to be the leader of the church. He wanted that attitude. Uh, another one was, would be Saul, or Paul as we know him now. Uh, but Saul was the one who was going after people who were following Jesus. Great zeal for God, but he was doing it. He was expressing his zeal by arresting, putting in jail, or even executing um, people that were following Jesus. And you would have thought Jesus, God might have said, I'm going to meet that guy in the road and I'm going to take him out because he's destroying my my young church. But he didn't. He said, I want that guy because that guy's got great passion. That guy, I just need to channel it. So he shows up and blinds him and gets his attention and says, you're going to be the guy. And he did. He became the guy with that kind of zeal that changed the world, that wrote most of the New Testament. Um, that's the kind of people God wants to use. Finally, I just wanted to throw out story of Jacob, one of my favorite Old Testament characters. I used to not like the story of Jacob because I thought, why did God choose him? Jacob screwed up so many times. His, his name even tells you what he was going to be like. Names are very important in the uh, Hebrew culture. Well, when Jacob was born, just a little reference, it was when um, Isaac and Rebekah uh, were having their children, twins. Well, they weren't. Rebecca was. And uh, it says that Esau was born first. He was the hairy one, the man's man, uh, the hunter, as it turns out, later in life. And then it said uh, Jacob was being born. He reached out and grabbed his brother's heel, which actually defines his name. He's the heel grabber. Uh, some interpret it. He's the usurper. He's the deceiver. He's the one that's going to seize it himself. Um, and he's the second born. He was not supposed to be the first in line. He was not supposed to be the, uh, the one to carry on the family lineage. Uh, you would think God would say, well, sorry, it's Esau. Esau was born first. But no, God wanted to use Jacob. Even though he was the deceiver, he actually took his brother's birthright. His uh, brother Esau was out later in, I don't know how old they were, probably in their 20s somewhere. And uh, Esau was out hunting, out, gone for a long time, comes back, he's starving, and he's pleading with uh, Pleading with Jacob says, hey, I'm starving. And he, he's making some stew. And he said, I need some stew. And Jacob kind of says, well, if you want to sell me your birthright? And Esau says, what good is my birthright if I'm going to die? And he sells him his birthright. Essentially. I mean, he didn't write a paper or anything, but get my point. The point is Esau would give up his birthright that easily. He's a guy who didn't care. He's a passive guy that didn't want what God had in store for him. And so Jacob took it. Jacob seized it. And then later at the end of his, of his father's life, he's going to bless his kids. He's old. Um, he's having a hard time distinguishing between his sons. And now it's uh, Rachel and he are 
about to deceive their father, uh, her husband, his father, to get him to bless Jacob instead of Esau as the firstborn. And he, he does. He dresses up in goat fur and uh, wears his brother's clothes so his dad would think it's him. And they deceive him. And his dad does bless him with the blessing he had in store for Esau. But he gave it to Jacob. And again, you think, why did God endorse that? Why did God enable that? Um, and I, I must say this, because when I first read that, I thought, well, surely Isaac can just say, hey, you, you deceived me. Um, rescind that one. I'm giving it to Esau. But he didn't. And I, now I understand. In that culture, your word was everything. And he even tells Esau, hey, I've already given the blessing. I, there's nothing else I can do. Because the Jewish people believed the word of God was immutable. The word of God had meaning. It had power. The word of God was used to create the world. You can't take it back. Once it's left the mouth of God, it's done. And so they believed that about their own words. They believed that their words were important. And they honored it. So he didn't. He blessed Jacob and he didn't have a blessing for Esau. And then they... Jacob runs away and deceives his soon-to-be father-in-law and ends up with great wealth. And now he's coming back to meet his brother. Like now he's 40, 50 years old, somewhere in there. He's getting older. And he's about to meet Esau. He doesn't know if Esau is going to come and try to attack him because when he left, it was because Esau was going to kill him. Well, that night, we have a scene where Jacob is wrestling with this man who shows up, some uh, some. In, transcribe it as angel of God he wrestled with. Some think it was God. Jacob thought it was God at the end because at the end he said, I've wrestled with God. I've seen God face to face and lived. Um, but he wrestles with Jacob. He wrestles all night. Finally, Jacob, uh, the angel says, let me go for it's morning. And Jacob said, I won't let you go until you bless me. <laughs> That's a forceful character. Even if he's a recognized, I'm wrestling an angel, but I'm not quitting until he blesses me. So he does. Angel blesses him. And I think because the angel also disabled Jacob in the, in the end. He was uh, humbled. He was broken. He was given a limp for the rest of his life. But that was Jacob's transforming moment. He left that wrestling with God different. God named him uh, Israel from that day. Israel in the Hebrew means wrestled with God. I don't know if you knew that. But that's, that's where he gets the name Israel. And in some ways, that's been true of the nation of Israel has always wrestled with God. Maybe sometimes not the best way. But um, that was Jacob's transformation. God wants to use somebody like him. Uh, well, what about us? What about you? Are you complacent? Are you one that are satisfied just hearing things? Oh, that was a great sermon. That was awesome. That was inspiring. Or are we going to do something with it? Are we going to go for it? Are we going to say, God, I need to know what you want me to do with this. Um, I want to experience the kingdom of God. Uh, that's God's invitation, is not just to hear the word, but to go after it, uh, to respond to it. Um, in the same way, I just want to reflect on Jacob's episode and update it to us, because I think God invites people to wrestle with him. Uh, sometimes we grow up in a church tradition where, well, whatever they say, that's, that's it. That's what our church says. And I think God wants us to wrestle with things we don't understand, wrestle with things we don't agree with. Um, because in the wrestling, God can bless us. God can give us better understanding. And so as a church, I want us to be a church 
that wants to, willing to wrestle with things. I'd love to think of us being a room full of people that don't all think the same way, that maybe disagree about things. And let's wrestle with it together and still be unified. That would be God's goal. You look at the first century church, that's what it was. He had Jews and Gentiles and tax collectors. and I mean, they should have had 18 denominations to start the church, but they didn't. They had one uh, because they were willing to stay there and wrestle through the stuff that was hard to understand and seek God in it. Um, so I'd love us to be that way as we move forward as a church. Um, I have one thing to close with, and it's a scene from the uh, series The Chosen. Anybody seen any of the episodes? A few of you, some of you. Um, uh, I would just endorse, uh, yeah, invite you to consider it. I think it's a great series. But uh, this one scene, it's the finale of season two, episode eight, um, I'm not going to be a spoiler or anything because it's 30 seconds long. But the context of this 30-second um, clip is Jesus is getting ready to give his Sermon on the Mount. He's ready to try to give people a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. And he's having this chat with, um, with Matthew. And he's saying to Matthew, uh, he's, he's kind of practicing. He's saying, this is what I'm going to tell the people. And Matthew, Matthew's response, why do you have to make it so hard to understand? Why can't you tell him more clearly? That was kind of his critique of Jesus' kind of rough draft. And uh, so this is where this scene comes out. I told you, these things will make sense to some, but not to others. I don't want passive followers. Those who are truly committed will peer deeply into it, looking for truth. But I do agree with you. We shouldn't begin with salt. You make a valid point. Good work. Oh, there it is. I love it. I don't want passive followers. I want people who are willing to dig in. Um, I think that's the heart of Jesus. That's the heart of God. How do we experience the kingdom of God? Dig in. Go after it. See what God has for us. Um, We're going to turn to time of communion, if you want to get that. Ready, And as we do, um, just want to leave you with two responses here, two conclusions, if you will. Two questions. One, if I can find it, where is it? Oh, you don't have it up there. Uh, what do you do? What's your response when you hear something or read something you don't understand? What's kind of been your pattern? Are you one that kind of wants to know more? Or are you satisfied with understanding what you know already? Um, just, just something to think about. Uh, second question would be on a, maybe a scale from 1 to 10. I would invite you, hey, do this this week, maybe. Take a little time, carve it out, evaluate kind of your own personality. But maybe do it with somebody else, maybe your home group, or grab a friend for coffee and answer this question. Hey, on a scale of 1 to 10, how passive or forceful do you see yourself in this walk with Jesus? Um, kind of what's been your background, what's been your experience? Um, so that will, uh, next week we will get to hear what Jesus says is the explanation for the parable, which is maybe the, Jesus said, by the way, I'll leave you with this. Jesus said, why am I doing this parable? He said, if you don't understand this parable, how will you understand any parable? So that's what we're going to dig into next week. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com 
or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.